thank you, God, that you're even mindful of us, just sinners, God, saved by your amazing grace, Lord, and your, Lord, your, your long-suffering and your love that, that we can't even begin to understand, God. Thank you for this book. Thank you for your word that you gave us to live by, to hold on to. Thank you for your confidence. Thank you for your strength. God, thank you for the fact that we can look forward and know that when we leave this world today, it's not a goodbye. It's a hello, Lord. It's not anything to be um, feared, but it's something to be looked forward to, to be in the presence of our Savior, that you take us by the hand and walk us through the promised land and see all of our family that's going on before us, God. There's, there's brighter days ahead, Father, and I just thank you for the promise that we have. Lord, I pray you'd take this word. Would you teach it to us, God? I pray for everybody in this place, for anybody that may be listening, live stream, wherever, God. I pray that you would, that would give everybody at least one little nugget tonight, something to, to learn about your word, something that we could take from here, God. That we'd go out and be a better servant for you. We love you, God. You've been good to us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to turn to chapter 6 here in Acts tonight, I'm going to try to do something that that I have not yet done in any of our Bible studies. I'm going to try to do a whole chapter in one night. Um, for that reason, I'm not going to read the whole chapter or the whole verses before I do like I normally would before I start, but it's not like I'm in a hurry to finish this. It's just there's only 15 verses in it, and they're pretty consolidated in their thoughts, so I'd like to try to get through it. Um, I've said before, this isn't an overview by any stretch. We're not... Or, or, or actually, it is an overview. We're not doing an exhaustive study of any of these Bible studies. We're not doing word studies or breakdowns that would take years. We're really just kind of doing a general overview of the passages. But my, my prayer is that each time that we come, that every one of us would learn something. I know I learn something every time I study. And, and I hope to bring something that everybody would learn a little something. But the desire is that as we go over and learn a little something, that it would just whet our appetite just enough that we would want to go back and study it a little more and go, man, that, that was good. I want to get it and, and actually go back on our own and, and learn some things there. So verse number one, it says that in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. So it, it's important there because it's clarifying two people we'll talk about in a minute, a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, Remember, we just talked a few weeks ago about how the church was together, and it said the church was united as one, and they all pulled together. They all put their money in. But if you remember that time, I said that didn't last very long. It doesn't take long until we get the letters of the Apostle Paul, and we begin to see how Paul writes about problems in the church. But we don't have to wait. Right now, Saul is still Saul. He, he ain't got to be Paul yet at this point in it. And we already start seeing problems within the church. It doesn't take long for the devil to get involved and try to mess things up within the church. It says that the church is growing. People are flocking in to hear about Jesus. They're flocking in to hear about the resurrection. They're flocking in to hear about this new word that they've never really heard before called grace. They're flocking in to hear about mercy. They're flocking in to hear about forgiveness of sin. That stuff is very exciting to a people that have lived under the law their entire lives and they've been beat down by the law and had to bring in their goats and lambs and rams and, and all the stuff. So there's a lot of excitement around it. But, but the chief meeting place is still in the courtyard of the synagogue. And, and the synagogue and all that property, all that stuff still belongs technically to the religious crowd, the Sanhedrin Council. And we've been looking at them a good bit for the last couple of weeks. Don't you know that this is like a burr under their saddle. I mean, this is a constant rub. They, they've already brought Peter in, and, and they've already 
warned them one time and brought in all the apostles and they beat them and they warned them again and they sent them out. But the devil hasn't been able to stop the church or stop the growth through the Sanhedrin council. So now he turns to his, his best resource and that is within. He begins to try to get those within the church and try to tear it down from the inside out. Now, it's true in our lives. You, we can deny it if we want to, but we've all been there to know. We've all run through stop signs and red lights and everything else that the Lord has put out in front of us when he's trying to get our attention. And when the Lord's tried everything else and he can't get our attention, there's one place he can always go to and get our undivided attention in a hurry, and that's the pocketbook. Amen, good preaching on a Wednesday night. When he can't get your attention any other way, he make you sick, and he can get you on your knees, but even that won't get it. But when he gets you broke, he's got your attention. And, and so with, just like it, the devil does with, with everything else, the, the devil starts using money right here because we just saw about the Grecians and the Hebrews. There's two kinds of Jews present here because there's two Jewish societies. you got the Hebrew Jews, and then you've got um, the, what's called the Hellenists. Most people refer to it as the Hellenist Jews, but the Hebrew Jews are Aramaic-speaking. Most of them are native-born Palestinians, but the Hellenists, those guys, uh, most of them are, are Greek-speaking. They are from Greek and Roman cultures because of the exile and the taking away of Babylon and all the things that have happened. They, they were born outside of Palestine. Now, the Hebrews, they tend to be very narrow-minded when it comes to religion. They've been brought up in a very strict sect of the law, a very strict sect of religion, and they don't allow much of anything in or out. They don't have any left-wing stuff going on. The Hellenists are a little different because it came from that Greek culture and with all the Greek gods and all that's going on. And although they, they are still Jews, they've been around a lot of other stuff. So it's a little more in their nature. They're a little more accepting of some things. But, but here in, in the church, you have the, this tension between the, the Hebrew and the Hellenists, both being Jews. The Hellenists, what they're saying, the Greek, the Greek ones, it says what, what they're saying is our, our widows are being discriminated against. They're complaining about money. See, the church in this day is very concerned about the poor. They do a good job of taking care of the poor. And a great majority of the poor in that day, if you look back and study, a lot of men died at early ages. Widow was not uncommon because of the level of workforce and all that was there. So a lot of the poor is made up of the widows. And what they're saying is that our widows aren't being cared for like the Hebrew widows are. So the disciples obviously are given wisdom from God. They didn't come up with this on their own. They decided to get the whole church involved. They said in verse number two, the, the leaders of the church, the disciples, it says that they called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, something I want to make sure that we understand right there where the disciples put that serving tables and make sure we get this right is they're not saying that waiting on tables is not important. They're not saying that the work within the church is not important. They're not saying that taking care of the widows and the poor and, and making sure this stuff is done right, they're not saying that, that that is not important. Nor are they saying that we're too good to wait on tables. That, that's not what they're saying at all. They're, they're not even saying that it's not a necessary job. What they are saying is that there are plenty of people in the church who can take care of that. 
We have a job to do that God has called us and given us to do, and that is, that is our job. There's plenty of people in the church to get involved, and the work of the Lord needs to involve everybody. You hear me say it all the time. I don't want anybody in here doing everything. I want everybody in here doing something. If we were all involved, it would change. It would help us reach the town. So that's kind of what it is here. It's a reminder that the church is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. God appointed his church. God appoints one man over his church to be the pastor. And that is the way that God runs his church. It is one man that is to follow God to lead a church. But it, it's not a dictatorship. I said it's not a dictatorship. Just because God appoints one to run his church doesn't mean that everybody isn't supposed to be involved. What we have here is the first demonstration of all of the membership getting involved in, in the work of the church. The, the disciples basically are saying, studying is our job. Teaching is our job. We have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to teach the church, the things, but but there are a lot of church. There, there are a lot of church members. There's a lot of people that can do something. There's a lot of jobs within the church, and we want everybody involved. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among ye seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. I don't believe you can have the wisdom without the Holy Ghost because it says to pray if any of you lack wisdom. So I, I believe those two are hand in hand. It says whom we may appoint. Over this business, he says, you go find the men, you look amongst yourselves, you appoint the men, and you bring them to us, and we will appoint them over the business. So what the apostles are putting place here it is the fact that I'm not sure how it happened over the years. There obviously was a change from that into a more current day. They're setting up the fact that no pastor can do everything. I don't know... I don't know, it was somewhere well before me, but I have proven that whatever they thought was wrong, everything that they had in their mind is wrong. Somebody somewhere thinks that, that the pastor's your financial advisor, your health advisor, your, your go-to advisor, your fix-it-everything advisor, your take-care-of-your-problem advisor, your marriage counsel advisor. I got news for you. I do good take care of me. And God didn't call me for any of that. He, he did call me to, to be a part of this church and to be an under-shepherd of this church. But the reason JB does marriage and, and a lot of the other things get handed off isn't because I don't care. It's because I know there are people who are better at that than I am. In your life, in your burdens, in your marriage, all those things are too important to trust to somebody that knows they don't know how to handle that. And, and that's kind of what the disciples are here. Listen, there's some things right here that there are some other people that can do. So, so what they're trying to do is get the entire body of Christ working together. Notice the instructions there. Don't say anything about go out and find some successful businessmen. Go out and find people who have proven themselves to run business as well and they know how to make money. It doesn't say anything about go out and find those who are popular in the community that, that everybody knows. It doesn't say anything about go out and find those who have a lot of pull with government officials because, you know, we may need those guys someday to, to get some things. It, it says appoint men who are full of the Holy Ghost. Appoint men who are living a godly example, who are living a godly life. Appoint men who are raising a godly family, somebody that, that is a man of integrity. But the, the main requirement is filled with the Holy Ghost and wisdom. That was God's requirement then. 
That's God's requirement now. There's a lot of other that we look at in Timothy and Titus when you look at uh, appointing deacons as well as bishops. But, but God gives a list of things. God expects some things. The apostle said, appoint these kind of men and we'll set them over these matters. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Ever since the Holy Spirit came that day of Pentecost and filled the room and the cloven tongues and all that happened, God has directed his church this way. A pastor is to be called. There are a lot of people who, who, who let's just say they pastor churches, but they're not called of God. That is not a pastor. A, a pastor is not what you decide you want to do when I grow up. A pastor is not something that you get to choose. A pastor is not something when I'm in high school, I think I'm going to, going to go to college and get a degree for this. A, a preacher, a pastor, any of those things have to be called of God. What you'll find out in common of, of everybody that is called of God, none of us chose to preach or to be a pastor. We argued with God at great length to remind him that we can't do that. And he reminded us, I know you can't. But if you just shut your mouth and listen to me, I can. That's kind of it in a nutshell. That's kind of the way we understand that, right? That's about what it, what it finally boils down to for me. But, but the apostles, they are appointed by God to be the under-shepherd over the church. But the apostles said, look, we need to take care of first things first. We, we need to... to Spend our time studying the things of God and being prepared to present the things of God to the people. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Verse number five. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. It was the Hellenists who had complained that, that the money wasn't distributed right. It was the Hellenists that was the Greek part of them that, that was complaining how things are being done so the disciples the apostles involved the whole church and appoint yourself some men but you know it's, it's just like God to do something like this all all of these men would be from a Hellenist name these aren't Hebrew based names it's just like God to take somebody from the side that's doing the complaining and go here you go they're all from your sect, take it and go. The first one is Stephen. Stephen becomes the first martyr in the church. It talks more about him being the man of God that he is. The second one is Philip. Philip becomes the first missionary in the church. Prochorus, we, we know a little bit about. Many people believe that he was very involved in John's ministry. Um, it's believed that he also was a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. The other four men, we don't know anything about. Here's what we know. They were men filled with the Holy Ghost. They were men planned by God to be used by God. They were men appointed by the church and, and hands laid on by the apostles to be basically the deacons within this early church. What that shows me is you don't have to be a who's who to be used by God. You don't have to have your name in the paper. You don't have to be... Mr. Popularity, you don't have to be any of those things to be used by God. We, we meet these men, we find out that they are chosen this position, and we don't know anything about them. Luke even adds to it that, that um, Nicholas was not only a proselyte, but that he was from Antioch. So we see it doesn't take anybody special for God to use them. It just takes somebody that says, here I am, Lord, send me. I just want to be used by you. Just, just take me and use me. Verse number 6 says that after they had appointed the men, they set them for the apostles. The apostles 
laid their hands on them. Now, that, that's an Old Testament practice from Leviticus chapter 1, mainly verse number 4, where they laid the hands on. But, but there's nothing that, that's really given to these men from this. In Leviticus and the law, when they brought their sacrifice, they had to lay their hand on the sacrifice, and that identified the sacrifice as theirs, and then identified them with their sacrifice. You remember the sacrifice, that lamb was going to die for their sins. The man brought the lamb, and that lamb was to die for the sins of, of he and his family, was to be carried in and sacrificed. So it basically is identified. So there's not a special gift given to these men right here by the apostles laying their hand. It just identifies them as being the ones who are appointed to do the work. Verse number 7 says that the word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. There's a major word change in chapter 6. Anybody know what it is? When we did our study here in chapter 2, verse number 41, Luke says, And they that gladly received his word were baptized. In the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse number 47 of chapter 2, it says that they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In chapter 5, verse 14, it says the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. But here in this text, in chapter 6, in verse number 1 and in verse number 7, it has gone from addition to multiplication. That's a lot faster growing, ain't it? Not just multiplication, but it says multiplied greatly. Boy, I wonder what's going on in the minds of the Sanhedrin council right now. This is the man that they beat. This is the man that they've threatened. This is the man that they've sent out and said, do not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And now these men have gone out and they're preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that the number's being multiplied. But look at who it is. The last half of the verse says, and a great company of the priest were obedient to the faith. The priests know the Old Testament law better than any of them. The, the priests know the Levitical law. They, they know all the things that, that are there. And what they're saying when they trust Jesus Christ, they're saying that the law is fulfilled. This is what the law said. This is what we were looking for. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. The scripture has been fulfilled. This is the Messiah we've been looking for. This is the Savior that we've been waiting for. The veil has been rent. They can walk in for the first time and see into the Holy of Holies. They can look in there and, and see. And this is a place that none of them had ever been able to see before. The high priest once a year was the only one that could go behind the veil to make the sacrifice. But now they go up and the veil is rent in twain. And, and they can look in. They can see the Ark of the Covenant. They can see the cherubims on either side with their wings spread out over the mercy seat of God. They can see the place where the high priest has gone in for years, year after year, and placed the blood of the lambs for the sacrifice on the people on the mercy seat. They, they can look in and see. The veil, the Bible says, is as thick as a man's hand is. No man has torn this veil. No man has rent this thing down the middle. This is nobody but God. And it happened at the moment when the Son of the living God, the beloved of, of God, said, It is finished. At that moment, God said, The Old Testament law is finished. New Testament grace has begun. Somebody ought to shout. There ought to be a lap around the building right here. I could preach like that in a Pentecostal church. People be jumping off the balconies. 
I don't know what they'd accomplish, but I just know they'd be jumping off the balconies. This, it says that this great company of the priest has joined the church. I can see where there's a problem in that. Anybody know from experience that old habits die hard? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Old habits die hard. Every one of us got saved. We might have got saved on Sunday, but we wasn't sanctified by Monday. We, we, we might have been washed in the blood and we might have been forgiven, but old habits die hard. It's hard to get through some things. Well, the, these are the priests. The, these are the men of, of tradition. So a lot of tradition comes in with them in the church. It's hard to just come in and all of a sudden realize that, that we don't have to do any of that stuff. And, and they begin to, to merge. They, they try to merge things in. They try to merge law and grace together. They try to merge circumcision with, with absolute mercy. Unfortunately, legalism isn't something that cropped up here in the early days of the New Testament church and soon died out. Legalism is alive and well today. Legalism is destroying the church from within today. Legalism is still driving people out of the church house today with no desire to come back because men are preaching the theories, the traditions of men as though they were the laws of God. If somebody can't give you a chapter and a verse and give it to you in context from in the beginning to amen, then don't listen to it. They're, they're, well, anyway, I don't have time to get off on all that. That's just reality. Verse number 8 says that Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So what we see here is a clash between Old Testament religion and New Testament relationship. But we also see that the, new, the wisdom of this New Testament, remember what the Bible said? He said that these men are to be filled with the Holy Ghost and what? Wisdom. And what we see is that the wisdom that God gives Stephen, that this Old Testament religion, these that come against him, they have no answer. Verse number 10 says of the religious crowd that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. It says that they were from the synagogue. The synagogue seems to come from exile after the Jewish people been carried out, carried away by the Babylonians. The, the, the synagogue became the place of worship. It became the place that they went to. It became a, a congregational place, a, a gathering place where the Jews would come. And the leaders of the synagogue, they questioned Christ as being the Messiah. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They do not believe that he was promised fulfillment of the Old Testament. So Stephen gives them answers straight from the Scripture, and, and they have no answers for it. They're, they're scratching their head because they want to deny it, but they have not, not anything in them. The most knowledgeable of their leaders all come, and they do not have any kind of debate that can stand up against the wisdom that the Holy Spirit is given to Stephen. Now, as is always the case with them, when they can't win by debate, they resort to violence. It says that they suborned men, which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to council, 
set up false witness, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. So this holy place, they're talking about the synagogue. They're talking about the temple is the holy place they're referring to. And the law they're referring to, of course, Moses, the Mosaic law. That's what they've lived by for all these years. But, but in this right here, it sounds just like a remake of the trial of Jesus Christ. It's the same people bringing the same stuff. They're paying people to lie. They're paying people to stir up rumors. They're, they're trying to stir up a mob against this man to get all of the chief rulers to, to come in and, and get all of the synagogue involved. They use the same false witness lies like they did with Jesus. They use the same angry mob tactics, go out and get a bunch of people riled up and get a bunch of people mad and come in. And then eventually they use the same thing they use with Jesus. They use murder. They, they murder an innocent man who they have no guilt against. The, but, but the two things that they're accusing him of here is, is blasphemy. They, they're accusing him of blasphemy against the law. But he's challenging the permanence of the Mosaic law. How many of you thank God that the Mosaic law was not permanent? That there was an end to the Mosaic law? Oh, love, that, love, Lord, thy God. Love thy neighbors thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. God didn't do away with the law. He said if you love God and you love man, you'll keep all those. This, this is the things to do. So he said that they're saying that, that he's challenging the permanence of the Mosaic law, but, but he's also challenging the permanence of the temple. Th those two things alone could destroy their temple practices. I mean, that messes up their whole theology. That messes up everything that they're teaching there in the synagogue that they're standing on. So that they take their appeal to the people because the people, you know, they also have been raised under the tradition. They, they've been raised under the same stuff their whole life. They've been taught the same law. So they still have all that there. So this whole concept of Christianity is brand new. It's still new to them. This whole concept of grace is still new. This whole concept of mercy is still new. You've got a lot of people who are still out there, still holding on to the law, and they begin to, to bring them together because they know they're enriched in the traditions of the past. I think I told you all Sunday I read that somewhere. It's a very scary thought, but it's very real. I read it last week, paraphrased for you. It was written 100 years ago. It said, I fear that in 100 years the church will still exist. Merely by tradition. Y'all get that? Merely by tradition. That, that, that's really what's trying to exist right here and there is this tradition. But we got to be careful not to be a people of tradition. We got to be careful to be a people filled with the Holy Ghost. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Seeking the Word of God. Listening to the Word of God. Listening to the direction of God. Doing our best to serve God. To be used by God. Not people of tradition, but people of character. People anointed and people appointed to be used by God. So, so anyway, sorry, I keep getting all off. I'm never going to finish. The, the people here, they view Moses as God's appointed, which he was. We all know that. They view Moses, the one that wrote the law, as the man. So the fact that he would have anything against Moses or to say that that law has an end, the people are going to rise up against that. They see the temple as always being the place of worship. It has become the common place. Ever since the first temple was built, and now they got carried in exile, and they had their synagogues, now the temple's been rebuilt. The temple is their holy place. The temple is, is their idol, if you will. 
the, 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 that's, that, that's, that's what they deem as holy. It's not as much God as it's the temple. And now Stephen is saying, no, it's not, it's not the temple. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the Jewish leaders, they put some, some planning into their accusations. They needed something that would stir up a mob against them right here. If you remember, it wasn't too long ago when they went to arrest these men that they were scared themselves of being stoned. Remember that? They had to go get them peaceably for fear of being stoned. So they were worried at that point of going in amongst the Christians. But now they've got over here and they got their own crowd. They got their own people riled up with their feathers all ruffled. And now they're going to get them. And it said in verse 14, it said, We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. It's Calvary all over again. It's no different. The Jews have rejected the Son of God, and now they are officially rejecting the Holy Spirit of God. The nation of Israel is finally crossing over the line that is going to lead to the destruction of the temple, that is going to remove their standing with God for 2,000 years and counting. All of God's promises to them will be fulfilled, but right now, praise God, we're, we're in a timeout period. Stephen is arrested. He's charged with blasphemy against the law of Moses. He's charged with blasphemy against the temple. The Sanhedrin knew that, that if they could get this large crowd to follow them, they'd be in business. And they knew that if they could accuse him against Moses and against the temple, then they could get him on their side. So Stephen understands. He reminds the people what Jesus had said about the temple. Jesus has, has not only clearly foretold, but he's perfectly foretold about the destruction of the temple. And, and what's happening is that time is drawing near. The, the days of the Old Testament Levitical law is over. With, with Jesus Christ, the dispensation period of the law came to an end, and the dispensation period of grace began. And the dispensation period of grace is the one we live in today, and everybody in here ought to say amen Thank you, Jesus, that I get to live on this planet in the dispensation period of grace. Because if it was up to me, I wouldn't make it. Right, three of us agree. The law has ended. Mercy and grace has taken its place. There's to be a higher level of worship. There's to be a higher level of praise. There is to be an intimate relationship in the place of Old Testament religion. Anybody get that? I'm going to have to say it again. Nobody got that. There is to be an intimate relationship in place of Old Testament religion. We get to actually have a relationship with God the Father, the creator of the universe, through Jesus Christ the Son, through the blood of the covenant. We, we have a relationship. When we pray, we're taught, we, don't, we don't have to go to a priest and ask him, can he pray on our behalf? We don't have to bring a goat and say, can you kill this? We can go straight into the throne room of grace that we might obtain mercy. Does that not amaze anybody besides me that we have a relationship with the creator of the universe, the, the one that can think all things into existence, that we can talk to him and that he cares, that he loves us, that he listens? Imagine the concept of these people coming out of Old Testament law trying to grasp that concept. Does that, that make sense to anybody? 
Do you understand why that could be hard for them to understand? They've been under the rigid law for so long to all of a sudden understand that mercy is free, grace is free, salvation is free, and it all comes in the name of Jesus Christ. That, I can understand why that's hard for them to grasp. Verse number 15, it says that, that all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him. They saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. The Sanhedrin has made all of their accusations. They, they've told all their lies. They've brought all the people in to make up their false accusations, false witnesses. They, they put it all there, and, and they brought everything. And, and the charges that they're bringing means death. Make, make no mistake about it. They know that the charge that they're bringing against Stephen right here means, means this, if we can convict him of this, it means death. And they also know that Stephen knows that. Stephen knows exactly what he's being accused of, and he knows exactly what the punishment is. So they looked at him to see what his reaction is going to be. At least that's the way I take it when I look at it. They look to see, well, I mean, we brought all this stuff, and now what do you look like now? And the Bible says that they saw the face of an angel. They talked about Moses. And they talk about a law, and, and then it's almost as like the face of Moses. Remember when he came down from the mountain, his face shined, and the people were afraid of him. And he had to put a veil over his face because he'd been in the presence of God. They look on the face of Stephen, and that's, that's the kind of face they see. They, they expected to see fear, but they saw strength. They expected to see anger, but they saw love. They expected to see, to see bitterness, but they saw grace. They expected, if they're talking about something that's going to get a man killed, they, they look probably expecting to see horror, but they saw a glimpse of heaven. They saw a man that appeared as an angel. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to close with this. We're about out of time. And this, this is just an observation, okay? That, that's all this is. Just, I, I don't, it's in doctrine. It ain't, I guess maybe it's Yanceology. I don't know. You can throw it away if you want. But it's still it's an observation. This is kind of what I'm thinking about this. Here, here's some things that I know for a fact. I know for a fact that one of the men present right here is Saul of Tarsus. He ain't the Apostle Paul yet. He's on a binge to kill Christians. He, he gets orders to go out and find them and beat them and kill them if he chooses to. So one of the men present in this crowd making the accusations against Stephen, desiring to have him killed, is Saul of Tarsus. Now, based on some of the things that the Apostle Paul writes about, he remembers this day. The, the men that, that are present here, including Saul, looked on his face and they saw the exact opposite of what they expected to see. They, they, they thought they would see the fear of a man, but they saw the glory of God. They, they saw something like an angel. So based on some things that, that Paul writes and the way that Paul handles some fearful times he, when he should have been afraid, but he handled them with strength and grace. Y'all know what I'm talking about? 
The Apostle Paul, I glory in tribulation. He wasn't afraid on the shipwreck. He wasn't afraid when he got bit by the viper. Y'all know what I'm talking about? There are some times that Paul should have been upset. There are some times that Paul should have been afraid. There are some times that you would think that Paul, from a human perspective, would, would have thought, I ought to be afraid right now. I ought to be worried right now. I just wonder how many times he remembered that face. I wonder how many times he remembered Stephen's face. He should have been scared, but he wasn't. That's what the grace of God looks like. That's what the glory of God looked like. That's what the power of God looked like. It was enough that he looked up and he saw heaven open. He saw something that we couldn't see. He had something that we didn't have. Well, when Paul becomes Paul, now he's got it. I just wonder how much strength Paul gained from being Saul when they stoned Stephen. From remembering the strength of that look, when Saul was Saul, he saw something in Stephen that he knew he didn't have. You understand, Saul is a very religious man. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a very intelligent, one of the brightest young men. I mean, he is set to be the president. He is the brightest young man out of Harvard and Yale. He is, he is a brilliant man. He has it all. But he can look at Stephen and he knows he's got something I ain't got. But when Paul got it, when Paul met it on the road to Damascus, I, th I think at that point, Paul realized what Stephen had. I, I think at that point, God probably allowed him to remember what he saw. And he said, what you saw in him is what I'm about to put in you. I just believe it kind of gave him some strength going forward. I do believe this. I don't, I don't have anything to prove it. I know that he remembers Stephen by things that he writes, but I don't have any way to prove this point. But I don't believe he ever forgot what he saw. I, I, think, I think that he got a good, clear look at Stephen's face that day, and I don't think he ever forgot it. And he knew that whatever Stephen had was something he needed, and when he got it, he never forgot it. Amen? That'd be a good thing for us to remember. If they got it, we got it. If they had it, we have it. It's the same Jesus Christ. It's the same blood of the Lamb. It's the same filling of the Holy Ghost. A good thing to remember, especially in, in the time that we're in and all that's going on, the sickness, all that's there, Stephen isn't out at the honky-tonks. He, he's not out running around. He's not out cheating. He's not out partying. He's not running from God like Jonah. He's not out acting a nutcase. Stephen is right dead in the middle of the will of God. He is a man that we know from what they chose, filled with the Holy Ghost and of wisdom. And he's living in the center of God's will in his own trial for nothing and he dies, stoned to death, the martyr, in the center of the will of God. Everything in our life ain't going to work out like we want it to. Everything in life ain't good. But God said, my ways aren't your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are higher. Sometimes, sometimes it does good to just to try to remember what Stephen's face must have looked like. Standing in the center of the will of God, being accused for something that's about to get him killed, and his face looked like the face of an angel. Sometimes we just got to be like Stephen and know that God's got it. 
it's okay. We may not like it. It may not be going well the way we see it. But God's got it, no matter what it is. Well, Lord willing, we will move on here to chapter 7 next week. Um, Yeah, God, thank you so much. God, I pray you'd give us that kind of strength. God, I'm careful about what I pray for, God. I know that that many things aren't given, they're earned. I I know that patience isn't given, it's earned. Faith isn't given, it's, it's earned. God, I know that it takes trials and troubles, God. I know that for our faith to be bigger than it is, we have to go through something bigger than we've been through, God. I I want to be careful about about how I pray, but God, I certainly don't want to pray more trials and troubles on anybody. But God, I do pray that you would give us wisdom according to your word. I do pray, God, that you would increase our faith. I do pray, God, that as we read your word, that you would increase the brightness of the light within us, God. This world needs a light right now. They need to see They need to see a face that looks like an angel in the face of adversity. They need to see a light that shines in the face of darkness, God. They just need to see Christ in us, God. I pray you'd help us, Father, to love people the way you love people. I pray you'd help us to love the lost the way you love the lost. I pray you'd help us to have a desire to help the hurting the way you help the hurting, God. I pray, Lord, will you help us to see things the way you see things and to be the way that you would have us to be, God. Use us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.